Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Cassandra Lee Quave will join us to discuss the plant hunter. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, many of our modern medicines have been derived from plants, and developing the next generation of medicines may largely depend on harnessing their power. Joining us today to discuss plants and their potential for the next medicines is Dr. Cassandra Lee Quave. Dr. Quave is the herbarium curator and associate professor of dermatology and human health at Emory University. She's also co-founder and CEO CSO of Phytotech LLC, a fellow of the Explorers Club, former president of the Society for Economic Botany, and recipient of the Emory Williams Teaching Award and Charles Heiser Jr. Mentor Award. Author of more than 100 scientific publications, she has penned her new memoir, The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. And Dr. Quave, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thanks so much for having me. Certainly our pleasure. It's a great memoir you've penned. Here's how you became interested in this field. It's a long story, but it really began with my immersion in both science and medicine from a very young age because I was born with multiple congenital skeletal defects that led to one to two surgeries a year, basically from the age of three to 18 to correct my skeletal problems. And so I was always surrounded by medicine. At the same time, I really fell in love with the natural world and became an avid participant in science fairs <laughs> starting in the third grade. And I just, in a way, never quit doing science fair because it's kind of what I do for my job now as well. And I first really came across the field of ethnobotany, the scientific study of how people use plants for myriad reasons. I'm focused on medicinal uses of plants near the end of my college experience. And I've been working in this field ever since. Your investigations, having to look for rare plants, has taken you all over the world. Yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, I've always loved travel and I love experiencing different cultures and meeting people. So it's a great field for that. I've worked in the Amazon, in the Balkans, in the Mediterranean basin, and I have collaborations in place all across the globe, from China to Pakistan to South Africa, Colombia, Egypt, Morocco, and more. And so what we're doing in these collaborative efforts is really to try to document the ways that plants are used by local people for the treatment of different forms of disease, and also to study those plants to better understand do they work? How do they work? Which compounds are responsible? Are they safe? And return that knowledge back to communities in addition to working towards trying to fill the very bare antibiotics discovery and development pipeline. You mentioned early on you had a number of led to having just one leg and traveling to many of these places must be extremely challenging with one leg. Yeah, it is. I mean, and it's, I guess, 
I'll throw this caveat out there too. It's it's not just the fact that I'm an amputee. It's because of all these other issues I have where my hip's been rebuilt, my femur's been lengthened, my spine at one point had over a 50 degree curvature that had to be corrected with rods and then those rods had to be removed. So I have, I kind of live with chronic pain as many people do, as many people do, right? And so at the same time, this line of work is really what I'm passionate about. And so I think having these experiences from a very young age really fostered a sense of resilience and problem solving. And so, you know, I'm still able to get out there in the field and hike mountains and go by canoe where I can. And sometimes it takes a little extra planning. So if I have to go up some really rough terrain, I might try and see if I can find someone that will let me rent some donkeys or mules to help us get up. With planning, anything is possible. With planning and passion, that's that's how I kind of think about it. Through all your adventures, the most amazing place you've been and seen on your adventures. Oh my gosh, it's like asking me which of my children's my favorite, <laughs> which is really hard. I'll I'll tell you about one of the most recent places I went. This was right before the pandemic. I was with National Geographic photographers up in the Shari Mountains that run along the line of Kosovo and Albania, and these are just amazing, beautiful places kind of high alpine pastures, meadows full of terrestrial orchids and wildflowers and just incredible views of the mountain range. And so that that's probably one of my most recent beautiful places I've visited. But I've, I've been lucky to see many places, many amazing places. This is all in the hunt for those plants that can yield the next medicine. Are a number of these plants that you've discovered, have they not been explored to the degree that it should be in terms of developing the next generation of medicines? So I'll, I'll throw some figures out there for the listeners. So we have around 374,000 species of plants on Earth that we know of. And of those, 9% or a little over 33,000 species have been recorded as being used in some form of traditional medicine. And when it comes to the scientific investigation of those species, we've barely scratched the surface. I mean, we've only really looked in detail with rigor and depth at maybe a few hundred of those species. And of the ones that we have investigated, I mean, we have some amazing drugs that have emerged, whether it's for pain or for malaria or cancer, heart disease. I mean, the list goes on and on. The challenge, of course, is that plants chemistry is incredibly complex. They don't just, you know, produce a couple of compounds. A single leaf tissue may have hundreds of what we call secondary metabolites that are used to kind of help the plant in defending itself against pathogens or pests or to recruit seed dispersers or pollinators. And it takes a lot of skill and patience to sort through those compounds in the search for the ways that they might be used or leveraged for modern medical applications. So the first step in that, collecting the plan, trying to isolate these compounds, how is this done? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the first step is really pinpointing which species to work on. So in my lab, we take a very targeted approach. We focus on plants that have a record of use, either that we glean either through interviews or through reviewing historic literature that have a, a history or current use in treating infectious or inflammatory disease. So we kind of narrow down from those 33,000 species to just the species that are being used already for the treatment of human infection. We then collect the plants in the wild. We collect what are known as herbarium specimens. These are basically, if you've ever pressed a flower between the pages of a book and let it dry and kind of have this really, you know, some people do this for artwork, right? It's similar to that, except we take a larger piece of the plant with the leaves and stem and flowers or fruit, kind of like a newspaper-sized clipping of the plant. 
and then press and dry that and it's mounted to paper and that can last for five or six centuries if cared for properly. And that's kind of the scientific evidence of what species you're working on. And then we also take samples of what are known as bulk specimens. So imagine a grocery bag full of the leaves or the fruit or whatever part of the plant's being used in that form of traditional medicine. Those are brought back to the laboratory where they are extracted and made, basically dried down into a powder. Now, everyone makes a plant extract on almost an, a daily basis. If you drink coffee or tea, that's a hot water extraction of plant material. So we do something similar to that, just with a little bit more um, sophisticated equipment. It must be uh, daunting sifting for that needle in the haystack, that compound or a group of compounds that you want. Yeah. I mean, I love that you use that phrase because that's what I tell people. It's like what we're really good at in our lab is finding the needles in the haystack because we've been able to leverage innovations that basically allow us to test these in more of a high throughput basis. So we're able to test, you know, thousands of, of these extracts against our target pathogens or against the things that we're trying to fight disease against. And then basically we're going back and forth between labs. So in one lab, we do the microbiological experiments, the safety experiments, and the other lab, we do the chemistry. And so when we find something that looks interesting, that has some potential good activity, that's also not toxic, then we send that back to the chemistry lab. And that's where my team members will work on separating that, teasing those compounds apart. And then those are retested. So it's kind of a back and forth enterprise between our microbiologist and chemist on the team. One of the interesting compounds you're studying are quorum sensing inhibition. Yeah, that's a, that's a great one. I mean, quorum sensing is a system that bacteria use to communicate with one another. So if you can envision a, a bacterium as a single-celled organism, and if that organism is in a host, so if it's in your body, that's when it's the most at risk. It's the most vulnerable because your immune system is trying to knock it out. If you have antibiotics in the system, it's also vulnerable to that. And so what microbes do is they have found reinforcements through partnering with other bacteria in the body. So basically they release chemical signals that help them coordinate their behavior. So this might be a signal that says, hey, let's all stick to this bone tissue together in a group and exude this slimy substance that protects us from the immune system. Or it might be, you know what, we're hungry, we want more food, let's release a bunch of toxins to destroy the tissues so that will release food for us to eat. And so the idea of using a quorum sensing inhibitor from plants is that this disrupts that communication system. And as a result, it takes away the capacity of the bacteria to defend themselves or to attack the host. And I really feel that this is the future of medicine when it comes to new innovations in treating infectious disease. And in reality, it's, it's the future, but it's also part of the past because guess what? Traditional healers have been using the these techniques all along. Has it been that in Western medicine, there's a tendency to overlook the more traditional approaches or at least them as a potential for finding those agents? I think it's a combination of things. I mean, in science, throughout the history of science, and I like to take the long view when I think about the history of medicine, the history of science is, you know, we get stuck in this kind of dogma. Our current way of dealing with infection is through antibiotics and antibiotics have been the game changer in dealing with the enabled modern medicine as we know it today. We couldn't have cancer therapy, surgery, childbirth as safely as we do today if it weren't for antibiotics. 
But at the same time, this principle of using antibiotics is really focused on the idea that we have to kill or slow the growth of bacteria rather than tinkering with their with these other systems. It takes time to change ideas, to change minds, and to explore how these, these might be used. If you look at the history of science, and I talk a bit about this in the book, because, you know, before germ theory, I mean, people couldn't even envision or imagine that there are tiny creatures that could invade the body and cause disease. It wasn't until we were able to really ask the right questions and had the right tools to be able to see those microbes with the invention of the microscope. And so when I think about the problems of really trying to understand how some of these traditional medicines work, I always try and remind myself that I may never in my lifetime, likely will never in my lifetime, have all the right questions, right? You have to have the right questions to really get the right answers. And we just maybe don't have the tools or the understanding, the basic understanding of some of these biological pathways at this point in history. But in the future, we will, which is just another reason why we need to work really hard to conserve these resources before they're lost forever, because we're facing both a dual crisis in biodiversity loss and also in language loss and loss of cultural knowledge. And we need to save both in many ways, a race to find those potential sources that can yield the next medicines and also to stay ahead of all the microbes that are quickly becoming resistance to the things that we do have. Absolutely. Some of the challenges um, over the past few decades has really just been the complexity of the chemistry and how hard it is to kind of get at the active agents to understand. Because sometimes there isn't just a single compound. In many cases, it's multiple compounds acting in a synergistic fashion. But I'm really hopeful because we've had some really big advances in analytical chemistry and also in bioinformatics platforms and kind of these web-based tools that now allow us to evaluate chemical data through the perspective of kind of network analysis and help us to look at like what are some of the common chemical scaffolds found in these species. And I really think that this is going to be a game changer in our ability to decode these chemistries and to learn to read the language of nature because plants are talking. They are talking through these chemical signals. A good way to think about this is I always ask my students, you know, when you think of a rose and that lovely smell of a rose, why does a rose smell like that? And why does a corpse plant or a titan arum, Morphophallus titanum, smell like a rotting dead body, <laughs> right? The reason is they have different signals. They're, they're sending out signals into the world to recruit very specific pollinators that they each need. Plants are sessile. They can't get up and move away from threats or go towards resources they need. So they have very sophisticated chemical signals that they use to communicate with the rest of the world. And I think that this is an exciting time in science where we're starting to really be able to read that language. For those people interested in this field or just getting into science, do you have any advice for their progress? Yeah, I'm, I always I always say it's important to really pursue your passion. But in order to define what that passion is, that can often be a hard part of the journey, right? How do you know what you want to do? And this is where I really encourage people to get experience. So if you're a student, you know, if you're a student in elementary through high school, think about trying out science fair. If you're a college student, you know, look for opportunities to volunteer with research groups or engage in summer research camps or summer research internships or even research jobs, just in whatever field of science that really gets you excited because there's so much on this earth to explore. I'm really excited about all the advances now with space travel that are that are coming out, but you know, there's a lot still to explore here on earth and we need more scientists to do that. 
curious if you have any final words regarding your book. Of, of anything else, after reading this, I hope that readers will have an appreciation for the incredible untapped potential of nature in, in being a source of our next medicines. But it's also a very personal journey. This book is, you know, my story of, of living through becoming a scientist as a disabled woman and mom juggling things as, as many parents do in, in their careers. And so I think that even if you're not like an avid nature lover, I hope that you'll find something to enjoy in this story. We were just talking with Dr. Cassandra Lee Quave, the new book, The Plant Hunter, A Scientist's Quest for Nature's Next Medicines. Dr. Quave, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks so much for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.